welcome to the Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Here we go. Hello. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Yeah, sorry, I had to publish the episode for this week, and I had to write the summary and description. Yes, thank you very, very much. You're welcome. Hey, you have a pop filter this week. Uh, Yeah, I do. Um... So last week I had been traveling the week before and accidentally left my microphone at my home and I was sitting at my office so I had to pull out an old microphone and it did not have a pop filter. Uh, And now this week I'm traveling again and uh, I'm in Kansas City but I brought my microphone with me and my pop filter so I think we should be good to go. Tonight I'm going to go to the Kansas City Elixir meetup and they're talking about writing uh, languages to run nice. on the beam. So I bet we talk about like beam byte code and stuff, but I'm not sure. I'm pretty excited about that. What else is going on? What are you guys up to? I know there's lots of crazy stuff going on in the community right now. I'm officially uh, about to be one coffee too many. Uh-oh. That's what's happening. Already? Oh, I guess yeah. it's three or three hours ahead. It's 12 o'clock here. I haven't yeah. even had coffee yet. So. Are you shaking? Mm-mm. it's about to happen though you know how you know you can tell sometimes you're one yep. coffee away yeah mm-hmm. that's when you go this get a big glass of water this yep. one's gonna put me right over the edge so it's about to get lit as the kids All say right. ready <laughs> so ready for that so i know we wanted to talk about supervision yeah. trees or we talked about that being something to talk about but there was there was one other thing that i think is important for us to talk about and then one fun thing so I'll, let's go with the fun thing first is Honeypot is releasing a mini documentary on Elixir. Oh, did you hear about oh, that? Oh, I too? saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. saw that. Sorry, that was where, a sarcastic. But... Did you hear about that too? Yeah, Good Lord. E- everyone cares. is talking. I got like three emails <laughs> about it. I got Twitter DMs about this Honeypot IO documentary. What I want to know is are you in it? Yeah, no, but it's the same people that you would expect to be in it who are in everything. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> Everyone has talked about this thing. It just it now I don't even want to watch it because people are like I've been sent the link to it too many times. Now my iconoclastic uh, nature is like gonna rear up in me like some sort of dark dark force, and it's like no, nah, I don't want to do this now. This is stupid. So so it's it got overhyped on you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a new Star Wars film. Like a hundred percent. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is our our version of Solo right here. <laughs> Hey, I don't know. The Han Solo death scene was pretty awesome. Spoilers. So, <laughs> so many. If, if you don't know that Han Solo died, sorry. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Amor. <laughs> well, we're coming in, in the, hot in this the, week. In coming the, in hot. <laughs> in the end of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy makes it home. Just spoiler. Spoilers. <laughs> Basically spoilers for Titanic, is what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, how, you know how far you can make it on the Titanic? About halfway. I just don't know why they couldn't have shared that board. They really, It really <laughs> seems like they both would have fit on that door or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's really sad. My, my daughter's watched that movie so many times, and I made Titanic jokes, and she got mad at me, and I thought... How long ago did that happen? I think it's okay. <laughs> Aw, well, if she's just watching. It's like it's just happening all over again for her. Exactly. So I, I'm, I'm actually still excited to, to see the documentary. I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think it would be interesting to walk through the history of that a little bit in video instead of just reading about it. 
Yeah, totally. I, I like videos. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll watch it. What was the other thing that you want to talk about, Amos? Oh, uh, so yeah, ES Lint Scope right. has there's a there's a ticket out there issue thirty nine. I already added it to our show links. Um, that it, there's a virus. Uh, well, what appears to be a virus. Um, somebody injected some code that loads up some code from Pastebin in there, and not sure exactly what the problem is. I haven't been able to read about it completely. I just heard about it first thing this morning. I think it steals NPM credentials. Oh! <laughs> as far as I read through oh. that issue, I, I think it steals NPM credentials. Yeah. Oh, man. That's bad. Seems wonder, bad, fam. Does any, any Anybody know how long this problem was there? The issue was around? It was only open for like an hour. Like, the issue was only open for like an hour. Right, but... but uh, how long was the actual um, malicious code? Oh, I have no idea. In there, uh, I don't know if you know this. But this is an Elixir podcast, so I have no idea about how long some JavaScript library is out in the wild. Well, but it's ESLint. What is that? It, Besides it, a linter, I mean, I can gather it's a linter. Oh, it's Ec- ECMAScript linter, but it's but, like uh, the linter. But well, I think that um, a lot of people use that if they're doing phoenix and stuff for their their front end things so i think ah, it's i think it's fairly related mm-hmm. um but that's i just found that it was pretty crazy that you know i i had never actually seen an open source project that ended up having malicious code in it i mean accidental malicious code like oops we ran you out of memory <laughs> sorry <laughs> but but not not on purpose. Or maybe, yeah, I wonder if it, we just don't hear about it or maybe it happens more often or maybe, maybe it is fairly unusual. Maybe. I, think, I mean, most of the time that stuff gets caught pretty quickly is part of it. But I think the other thing is like, we're in a very uh, specific group of people who are working in a, you know, relatively small language. Like uh, it makes so much more sense to go attack the biggest community in the world, which is JavaScript in one of the biggest tools used by that community i presume yeah um whereas like the the benefit of of you know even if you were to somehow i don't know steal credentials to publish something to for like phoenix or something like that um the damage is like probably less than what it is for for like a linter in the javascript world so the crazy thing is is somebody would have had to put that into a pull request somebody would have had to accepted it Mm-mm. And no, so, no way. That's that's not that's not true. Well, how did how did it get into the Git repo? Uh, someone stole. Well, it doesn't have to be in the Git repo to publish it to npm. That's true. Oh yeah. Somebody just stole. Somebody stole someone's credentials and then published a package to npm to steal more credentials. Oh, so that's you've read? I think you've read more happens. about this. That's what I. I, I mean. I, I I skimmed it. I think that's what happened. I didn't read it that that in depth. Yeah, yeah. That's it's a. Uh, I don't know. It's pretty serious. <laughs> but and, I mean, there's no scary. there's no attachment to GitHub or to or any of that kind of sort of stuff to publish a package to npm. You just like push code. Well, okay, but I didn't know that it wasn't in the in the actual. Well, source. I mean, it might it might be, but I doubt. Yeah, it. somebody was saying it looks like it's possible some npm credentials got compromised. Oh man. And then it's possible some more NPM credentials got compromised. Yeah. So here's here's what I learned. Um, don't use Node. Oh, wait. 
I already try to avoid that. <laughs> That's what your takeaway from this was? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good takeaway. Yeah. Um no That's uh, the life lesson we should all learn. I I think I think the main thing is is I mean you really you need to be you know if people trust npm that's that you you are trusting the stuff coming from that server but maybe you need to verify it um maybe some of the package managers should should check repositories versus the code that they have uploaded and and have some some checks i know like you can do an md5 some check but all that does is make sure that there was no man in the middle because you're usually getting the md5 some from the expected md5 some from the same source like mm-hmm. like npm yeah but at mm-hmm. some point you have to trust the credentials right right so if i publish something it should i should be able to publish it if i have my credentials i mean that's the that's the core problem here right is somebody's credentials got comped yeah, and then, and then it's you know you're effectively that person. You can do whatever you want. So now we need to get the source of. And well, my thing is if if this ESLint has if some malicious code got yeah, added yes. to that, what else out there in the Node environment or in Hex or anywhere else could potentially has this exact right. same problem going on right now? Mm-hmm. Just somebody noticed it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is. I mean, think about the numerous amounts of packages that are on npm. I'm sure there's stuff on there that's malicious. Yeah, Just I want to add it to LeftPad. downloads or whatever. It'll it'll get added everywhere if you add it to LeftPad, right? <laughs> I mean, honestly, like I bet there's stuff in Hex that's probably malicious. Man, I mean, I suspect if you go look, you'll find something that does something nefarious. Why are people so, terrible? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So so it's, what do you what do you do? I mean, I could be wrong. Yourself. I mean, they could be doing like a ton of security and whatever else, but or, or or auditing of the code itself. But my intuition is that there's probably something on there. There's probably some sort of like rogue uh, uh, package that tries to like right. uh, even just send telemetry data back up to a server somewhere or whatever. So, so what do we do as as users of all of these libraries to to protect ourselves? That's, I mean, I'm. I don't want to live in in fear of pulling things down from hex, but but this makes me a little more cautious than than I might have been. But I, you know, we're using so much code out there. You're not going to sit down and read every line of it and make sure that this stuff's not happening. Not with it's that not, attitude. It, it's not possible. <laughs> oh man! Coming in hot. <laughs> and if only that caffeine is working. If it's, only it's I, kicking in. If only I had a better attitude, I'd be just fine. My power is upon me. This coffee. I like that you're telling Amos, who's like the most positive person on the planet, given some of the stories he shared, <laughs> to have a better attitude. Oh, at two o'clock in the morning, after a long day with my kids, my wife might not tell you that I'm the most positive person on the planet. That's fair. I, I'm very mean after I've driven across the country in the middle of the night while the kids slept for vacation. <laughs> The, fir- the first day of vacation is stay away from dad. He's a bear. Aww. <laughs> well, give all your other stories. I don't know. I said maybe we should, I can share a little slight background on that is that I, I was telling Anna and Chris, I was in the uh, Air National Guard for 13 years and my call sign was Vic and it was short for victim because there was always bad things that seemed to happen to me that were completely outside of my control. Like, <laughs> 
dysentery and bed bugs twice. Uh, I got fiberglass in my eye, and there's there's a lot there's more stories like this. And it was a long list. It was it was a sizable list, and you, you don't even know all of it. It was like naming like the sons of Abraham. Like it was like a long list. Somebody uh, uh, came up to me one time and was like, "How how are you so positive and happy all the time?" It's like if you had my life and you weren't positive and happy, you'd be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've had a lot of blessings in my life too, so so I've been on both ends of that spectrum, and you know I can I can deal with a little bed bugs to to have the the great friends and family that I have. So I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. <laughs> See, so positive. <laughs> and yet won't read all the code that he pulls down for his dependencies. Do you read every <laughs> single line of code you pull down for your dependencies? <laughs> no, not every single line. <laughs> I skim. Maybe, maybe that's why I'm so positive. <laughs> <laughs> maybe like 90% of lines. Really? He, he reads them as they're coming across the wire. Yeah. yeah as they're coming across the wire. He's in Wireshark as raw TCP dump. <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. I, I turn on Wireshark every time I pull. It's like looking at the <laughs> Matrix. You just, you know, you start to see it inside the code at some point. Look, virus. <laughs> uh, I will say this is this is like not as much of a joke. I actually do read a, a lot of the Elixir code that I pull in. But I also just don't add that many dependencies in elixir but i look at a I, I actually typically go and skim through um most of the dependencies that i bring in in an elixir project i frequently will skim the library like on github or i might even pull it down and skim it but when i pull it from hex i don't go in and look at it and make sure that it oh no what I yeah expected. no 100 percent. No. and and that's where this problem lies is is and and to be clear i don't know if we were very clear um uh, I think we were, but I just want to reiterate, this was not something found in Hex. It doesn't mean that there's not a possibility of something out there like this, it, but it was not found in Hex. This is an NPM issue. Yeah, that's, that's good. Good to clarify that. Yeah. Silver lining here, the, they were really fast about fixing it, from what and I can so, tell. And so if you have a project that's using anything from NPM that, that has ES lint, um, go, yeah, and probably just... Don't even worry about checking your, well, check your version, fix that if it is. But even if it doesn't say that it's that version, you might as well go out and change your credentials. Yeah. Just just be on the safe side. Yeah, absolutely. So supervision trees, huh? Yeah. Was that the only other thing? I got I got a list. Oh, what, what was next on the list? <laughs> I think that well, was hang it, on. I want to talk about, I want to talk a little bit, we'll cut this out. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about reading dependencies that you bring in. Yeah, that's important. We should talk about that. The only reason I do it is, number one, the amount of dependencies I bring in is relatively low. The other problem, though, is that uh, at least in Elixir, that's all right. What's the the most correct and nice way to say this? Because I've had too much coffee and this could this could get pointed really quickly. Um, I would I would expect no less from you, Chris. Well, so like I think there's (laughs) so I think that there's tiers of dependencies in elixir right now and i think that's true for any language it's just like how wide that is to depend how wide the 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 amount of um any different uh stratification of dependencies in terms of quality is, is very wide for languages that have been around for a long time or have like a lot of users or whatever and i think in elixir we have that same stratification uh but it's it's a little bit narrower so for certain 
dependencies, the farther down you go in that stratification, um, you know, you have to be more careful about looking at what it is that you're bringing in and analyzing it to find out if you're going to have bottlenecks or if you're going to have unforeseen issues that you, you know, that, that, that the original author like didn't intend, or if you're going to have race conditions and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I've definitely pulled in dependencies where all of a sudden are uh, throughput just like tanks and it tanks because they're serializing inside this library they're serializing like every message through a single gen server or something like that that's not okay <laughs> i really wish we could capture reactions via audio yeah we should put I think, the video well, we, up at some point we we could l- totally leave in all of that silence and i think that people would get it Coming in hot. <laughs> Everyone's. I need. I'm. I'm lacking caffeine. I think compensating for all of this. I've, I've only had one coffee, but I think I should have had five more. Just. I'm trying to. I'm trying to make up for last week where I was so foggy and out of it that I couldn't I, even make coherent sentences. I, I think we were all pretty out of it. Yeah, I think we're all out of it last week. All right. Anyway, three, two, one. Back to the show. So. I, there are typically not typically there there are often uh performance issues with libraries that just haven't been seen that just haven't seen as much like real world usage yet and i do go in and i look for that kind of stuff especially if i know if they're interacting with outside resources or outside services and stuff along those lines because that's often a place where you'll see people serializing calls or trying to like save state in a single gen server and then passing it through that one gen server um you know, yesterday I was looking at a library that uh, we're, we're using for sort of monitoring and stuff like that, and they're using process dictionary, like kind of a lot inside of it. And that was a little bit of a red flag, just because I think it's always it should be a red flag when you see somebody using process dictionary because of the dangers that are inherent in process dictionary and that kind of stuff. Um, Can you explain that a little bit more for folks listening? And, and, and for me. Uh, yeah. So process, the process dictionary, actually, there was a really good talk on it at uh, Lone Star Elixir, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes. And and it provides a lot more uh, information. But process dictionary is a place to put mutable state, or it's a way to have mutable state inside of a process. And it, it because of that, it comes with all these other disclaimers about how to use it, where to use it. Um, the dangers of using it, that kind of stuff. It makes debugging really, really hard. So if you're from Ruby, we would call that thread local? I think we just call it state. Well, I was saying thread thread local is is kind of the run from this, if you see this in a Ruby library. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's similar. It, it comes with a lot, with, with some baggage, with some baggage. So, uh, but, you know, I think it's important to go look for that kind of stuff. Um there's definitely been libraries. I mean, we saw this stuff at Latote too. We would go find libraries and then realize they had these optimizations that they needed or that they had race conditions or they weren't closing connections to external services or whatever. And, you know, we try to ship those back and fix that kind of stuff for people too. Um, and but I, I also yeah. just find that I don't pull that in that many dependencies. So it's not, an, it's not a burden on my time to some degree. I try not to pull in a dependency that I'm not using really like 90% of it. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going to use one function in something that, that is giving me a 
500 things i'm probably not going to pull it in i'm i'm either going to rewrite it or look for a different solution right um but i i do have a tendency when i'm when i'm looking at libraries is um i might pull it into an empty project start it up if the library has gen servers i'll go look in observer see what's going on um look for anything where it's talking to the outside world uh it it but you know performance too uh i i recently have been using benchy a little bit but i see a lot going um especially from uh michael and um devin of you know the what is it fast elixir Mm -hmm. where they they have been trying to do things to push the the envelope of performance in in other libraries that are that are big they go work on performance issues and so i think that's a good thing to watch um and and learn from for your own libraries because not pulling in a library doesn't guarantee you're going to be fast and not make the same mistakes so we had uh discussed talking about supervision trees um so uh, i kind of got on this because frank hunleth was uh, put up an Elixir forum post, uh, guidelines for supervision trees and setting restart intensity parameters. I put a link to it up so, um, to you guys, and, and we'll put one in the show notes. But he he's really uh, asking about you know how do you how do you decide on um, the two main settings for for supervision trees or or your supervisors to restart before they they give up. Um, so those two settings, uh, I just blanked out on what they're called. It's, but it's restarts per second, but there's or per time Inten- period, intensity. right? Intensity. There you go. Restarts and intensity. So it's, um, Erlang by default has one restart every five seconds and Elixir does three restarts every five seconds. Um, I know Frank put in there that he, there Erlang gives in the, a uh, rationale for for the choices that they made but he couldn't really find much in in elixir for for why those choices were made for the defaults so i don't know like when you're dealing with this when you guys are dealing with with supervision trees and restarts how do you how do you decide what to set these things to um and and i i i know it's not there's no like simple. Oh, this is exactly what you should set it to. That's why they're configurable. Um, and I, I, you know, I start with the defaults and then go from there. Unless I really know right up front exactly what I need. So I do some testing. I try to make things fail on purpose, um, especially with outside connection stuff. If I'm talking to outside servers, I might have it fail a lot more. But what what do you guys do? I mean, I don't think I have anything super insightful here uh, when it comes to how you pick the the intensity and 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 restarts and stuff like that it it really is case dependent um and it totally depends on what it is you're supervising so i don't know that i have any great any great wisdom other than to to think about the problem that you're trying to solve how are you anna any ideas this is a bad topic this is a dumb topic Um, I would Sorry. say my strategy is similar to yours, Amos. I don't know that I have anything super insightful. I mean, yeah, it really is very case dependent and where in the supervision tree something lies and how worried you are about that process failing and what you need from it and how I, so I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think one of the, the hard things, 
in coming up with with stuff is you know you, you have something that you say oh it, it shouldn't fail that often maybe i give it five restarts in three minutes you know and then because you want it to be able to handle a burst so you give it five restarts but you say three minutes and you know what if it has a burst at the beginning of five restarts that's great and then it's it's fine and at one second before the end of the three minutes is up it fails one more time now you just shut down and is that okay so there's it's it's not as straightforward of a problem whenever you're thinking about it as it seems to be i think is a big problem and then you know you get trees going and you have supervisors under supervisors under supervisors and really at that bottom level you have the ability to restart there even more mainly because the top the person right above that one will restart and then you you get to start over on your whole count on on the the lower one so if you have let's say you have an external service that you're being rate limited on and and those those restart intensities if it's lower on the tree and could restart more you might actually have to pull that out to its own part of the tree to to control it so you don't get kicked off the service for for too high of a rate does that make sense i don't know i might just be rambling <laughs> well i mean i think it makes sense but you are also rambling yes i will um, <laughs> no i mean I, I defer back to the old standby which is our friend dear friend of the show uh fred and his uh, amazing blog post it's all about the guarantees uh, which i think we've linked to before you and but but i think that's the right way to think about it what are the guarantees that you're going to provide inside of these supervisors you know if you're monitoring external connections what are the guarantees you need to provide in order for that service to be stable and working in a good state and that sort of stuff um, and if you're thinking about it from the point of view of those guarantees then i think that can help frame the problem correctly for you so i mean let's let's say yeah you you set your your uh, restart time for three minutes or something like that I mean, is that the guarantee you want to give? If if you get three uh, failures within three minutes, then you're going to fail. Because if that's the guarantee you're giving, then then yes, you, the correct thing is to shut down. And maybe you actually want to restrict that guarantee even farther and say, uh, you, you, maybe you don't want it to be three minutes. Maybe you want to actually restrict that a, like to a much shorter time uh, time span in order to maintain a, a like a system wide guarantee. I mean, I also think this has a lot to do with the ways in which we build systems and thinking about at what levels do we enforce certain guarantees, right? Because I think your mm -hmm. guarantees change over the life cycle of the system. The, the first level is like, I can start my application. So I have an OTP app. I can start it up and it uh, does whatever it needs to do to reach sort of baseline level. And maybe what it needs to do is attach to a database, attach to Kafka, start a web server, and like bind the port and start receiving web requests. And maybe that's you know state zero for you, for your application, because that's like the correct guarantee that you want to provide. In which case, you're going to design a supervision tree to accommodate that. And you're going to design a system that needs all those things like at boot time that that baseline zero is really the starting up of every individual application whether it's it's a database repo right 
that that's a separate application database connections or a Phoenix app or um, some other when I when I'm talking about applications here I'm I'm saying the the Erlang Elixir version of what an application is but sometimes that startup can even have problems and Erlang base base OTP does not give you a way to to have applications have restart strategies at that top level very well mm-hmm. um like SSH is one that I've talked about before uh that it has I want to say 10 restarts in 3,600 seconds. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when the system's coming up, you just can't get a connection. Like like, like if you're using a firmware device that this boots up as the firmware device boots up, you just don't have a network connection yet for it to really grab onto so it fails too fast and crashes. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't actually want to put that application and start it up by yourself because that can be a little painful too, especially if other parts are depending on it. So there's um, shoehorn from right. the nerves, nerves team. That, this is the that, nerves. This is the nerves library that basically circumvents app startup in order to yeah. contr- in order to restart failed applications. Right. Right. So um, it, it circumvents part of the application startup process and allows you to catch application exits. Uh, only during startup. After startup, I believe it goes away. After everything's already started, it, it undoes itself. But uh, the it allows the user to put in handlers and build handlers that do different things. It could be a circuit breaker handler. It could say, hey, you know what? Go ahead and try to start all the other applications, and we'll just try to start this one later. Um, and and you could do you could do lots of different things. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a supervision level control at the at the application startup level which can be pretty complex especially in an embedded device which is why they they did it so uh let's put aside for just a moment the like let's put aside some of the built-in otp applications that that ship with erlang and otp because they don't Mm -hmm. always behave the the way that they get like special treatment in certain certain cases you don't always get to control their stuff so let's like put those aside for just a second and let's talk about the stuff that we do control, which I think actually applies to basically a lot of the nerves stuff, right? right. The, the different nerves applications. So let's talk about just that problem right now. Um, the problem that people are attempting to solve is I've got this application. It tries to start up. And when it starts up, it needs access to these external things. And you can think about this. It's, it's not a lot different than starting a web service that needs to connect to RabbitMQ, Redis, Kafka in a database somewhere, like a Postgres or something like that. And also start a web service when it boots up. Now, my take on it is, number one, why is stable system zero, why is the baseline level of stability all of that? Why does it need all those things when the application comes up? Because it seems like you could start up your application and just start the web service and nothing else could be running, but, but the web service and you could still return errors and just say, we're not started yet or whatever from your web service. And that could be baseline zero. And then once you've established that you can move down or to the next phase, which is, you know, stable system level one, wherein we now have a Kafka connection and we now have a RabbitMQ connection and we now have a Redis connection. And that gives you the same 
sort of resilience that you're looking for, uh, but in just a different way of thinking about it. And I get that that's kind of what Shoehorn is trying to do. But what I don't necessarily understand is why is Shoehorn a better way of solving? Like, why are why are people looking for sort of application level restart strategies as opposed to just saying that when my I have a Kafka application, when my Kafka application starts, it doesn't start anything yet. It can just start. And now when I want to start uh, my actual stuff, I can manage that myself or it can it can manage its own intensities or maybe it's all dynamic. Maybe all the super, all the connections should just be dynamic and all that the Kafka application does is start a singular dynamic supervisor and then just spins up workers. So I, I, I think that that gets back to what we talked about earlier about, you know, using libraries is that you're using some library that maybe you don't know how long it's going to take to get upstream to change or maybe a configuration that allows you to do these kind of things. And it's set up as an application and it's going to start. So you can either change it to, um, oh, what is that, where you start the application in your, from your own. I can't remember what that's called right now. Well, where you add it to like your included applications? Included application. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, thank you. Application start. Yeah. 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 So, so you either add it to that and, and then put some controls around it or you have to depend on what they have going on. And I think that shoehorn in a lot of ways is not to fill that, hey, this is a way to fix the things that you're writing. It is like your other application. You shouldn't be using shoehorn to restart an application that you control all the code inside of necessarily. But it it's for I'm using I you know, you said set aside the the standard Erlang, but I'm using SSH. I'm not I, SSL. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, that, that and, stuff is, yeah, that's a different, right. it's a different that, problem. That is really, I think the wheelhouse that shoehorns trying to solve is the applications I don't control. And maybe I, I want all their security fixes, but it might be a long time before they get my fix up. So forking gets to be a big pain in the butt to try to keep things up to date until mm-hmm. they pull in my change. So instead shoehorn is, is really a bandaid until I can get a better fix in place. That's that's how I've used it. Yeah, in so many ways, this feels like it, it like the config problem all over again. Yeah, there's yeah. so we're we're inventing solutions to solve a problem that effectively the community to some degree has created for themselves because of patterns that we've that we've used. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's too. Maybe that maybe that's like laying blame or something like that. But I just think like like we're trying to we're like building tools to solve a problem as opposed to changing the way we think about designing systems, which is. Uh, understandably a lot harder and a lot more time consuming. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really saying that we shouldn't have these solutions. I'm just saying. And, and I, I don't think that it means that people are going to stop thinking about those problems. I know I still think about those problems. I worked on shoehorn a lot and the whole time I was working on it, I, I kept telling Justin Schneck that I was like, Hey, uh, Justin, friend of the show. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel really dirty. <laughs> every time we're working on this, I feel dirty and I don't know that we should do this. And I spent a lot of time trying to, to come up with other solutions to the issue. Uh, Even after we had the PR and, and, and I kind of every day would come back and say, Hey, are we sure we're doing the right thing? And all of us feel a little dirty about it, but well, didn't they, didn't y'all try to submit this to 
OTP to try to get them to change the way that applications work so you could actually do this at Oh, I like don't an OTP I don't know level. if they did that. I feel like I Justin don't. actually went and talked to people about this because this happened I think it happened when I was, when we were all at Latote. Um yeah, before the great diaspora that was the Latote Elixir team. <laughs> um I think I remember him talking about that. He actually went and talked to I don't know, someone, someone either, either was like Jose or somebody about this, about adding the ability to do restart strategies with application, with applications so that effectively you wouldn't have to have a shoehorn. This would just be built in. Yeah. And I, I'm, I can imagine that he did. I, I believe that, but I just, I was not privy to that conversation. So I can't tell you what was said or what the, what the outcome was. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it was a hard problem, and it was something that we needed solved now. Like, it wasn't right. something that on, on my team that we could wait on. I think, I think that it's, there's two things, and I think this goes back to the config discussion, right? Like, the solution to solve the current problem, and then the longer-term, harder solution to change how we actually build systems so that these problems don't arise in the same way. And I don't know an effective means of communicating that quickly, right, through an entire community. Yeah, I don't know how that, how you make that change uh, quickly, but I, I mean, to start getting out the knowledge, I think that, you know, Chris was talking earlier about changing your baseline zero. And a lot of that is when you look at examples of supervisors, they're not supervisors that the supervisor starts and then later starts another piece of the supervision tree right mm-hmm. so that which is what you need for that baseline zero so your your first examples when you start working with supervisors and the code that we write is often hey i configure this in a knit and at the end of a knit the supervisor starts up all of these children mm-hmm. as part of its initialization process but in order to get the baseline zero that Chris was talking about, where we're up a level, where we start just part of it and then start to start those submodules, first you need the the like in his case the web interface to know that those other submodules aren't started and how to respond when they're not. Mm-hmm. You also have to have those submodules, their supervisors, the supervisor starts, but does not start its children, which is very rarely found in any examples online well it's and it's much harder to do to be clear it's much much harder it's much more involved and there's honestly there's good reason that supervision trees start the way they do which is depth first and they block until everything starts and the reason you do that is to enforce guarantees you know you want these things to block uh maybe you need to read a file into memory and that's a crucial part of your uh, of your system working correctly. And so if you need to do that, well, you need to block the rest of your processes from starting until that thing is done. And if it takes 30 minutes to do that, if it takes an hour to do that, well, that's still part of our guarantee as a stable system. So we're just going to do that and we're going to block everything else until it's done. If you can push it to the right and down on your tree, if not everybody else is dependent on it, to make it one of the last things that starts. Or uh, one, one other strategy I've used for something that took a long time to start is I wanted it to start way early on in the tree so that it would have time to finish, but I didn't want it to block. Uh, and at the time, you know, the new continue stuff wasn't there, but I used a, a, a process and it's an it, it sends after so that other things can start starting. And, but it can steal one of the 
the scheduler will give it time to finish its startup process in like an after init. And that that can be super helpful too. And that can be a way that you can actually start up your whole tree, but your your in your your leaf nodes to those trees that actually have your functionality that are not just the supervisors could have after init callbacks that so everything starts up in like this uninitialized manner is another way to do it outside of having a supervisor that then has to be told to start its children later. It can start its children, but the children push off their actual full initialization. But then you have to deal with like a state machine type thing where you're saying, hey, I'm not initialized. Maybe you send me messages and I send you, hey, uninitialized, and the other end has to deal with that. Or or you send me messages and I queue them up and and you know that depends on your memory how fast you actually think you're going to start if it's going to be five minutes you probably want to tell them you're not started if you're pretty quick to start up you probably want to hold those things in 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 your mailbox maybe just put them back on your mailbox or or some other other way to handle that Mm -hmm. Uh, the other thing is you can watch processes right so you can you can monitor processes and have weird things going on with that that you can see when things are are starting failing initialize register for events from them whatever there's there's a lot of ways to skin that cat uh one other thing that i i do want to touch on with these supervisors is uh, i kind of hinted at it earlier but is is using some kind of circuit breaker pattern so sometimes in restarting you can't just restart over and over. Like maybe you know whenever I go down three or four times in a row, if I keep continuing to try to restart, even though I want to restart because maybe it's not a super important part of the system, but I can run myself out of memory. I can run into all kinds of issues with trying to restart over and over. So one of the things is is put it in a circuit breaker pattern. Uh, there's, there's a pretty good library for it called Fuse that I've used, and there are a few others uh, I can't think of right now. But uh, a circuit breaker pattern is like, a, like a, an automatic circuit breaker that you, you can get these for your car or for your house where the breaker will kick back on automatically. That's our, our normal restart process. Like the process fails, supervisor restarts it. And when you have a circuit breaker in there, the process can fail, and you can have it configured to have a cool down time period. Like maybe it fails three times within five seconds. You say, hey, we're not going to try to restart for a minute. Or you can have exponential backoffs on that or whatever. So the, the process will will kind of get into that initialization that we talked about earlier where it starts up, but it doesn't do anything. So it can't really crash again and then just sits and then it will fully restart. That's that's one way to implement it yourself or a fuse, fuse library. I can't remember exactly what it does, but those those are pretty good strategies. They and really you can make your own pretty easily. Get a gin server, use process monitor, monitor another process, another and be able to talk to its supervisors, tell it when to restart instead of set it set it to temporary instead of letting the supervisor restart it over and over. The monitoring process tells the supervisor when to restart it. It's a good way to implement that. Yeah, I really like Fuse. Uh, we, I use, I tend to use Fuse around basically all of our external communication stuff just to stop cascading failure. Yep. So you can kind of graciously, gracefully handle it because it gives you nice tooling and nice messaging around being able to um, take different di- different paths depending on success or failure. So if I'm talking to an external web service uh, and and it's okay for the data to be a little stale then what we'll do is we'll <clears throat> send a message. This is all hidden behind a circuit breaker. We'll send a message to the external service. We'll get the request back. 
will stuff uh, the all of the the response into uh, ETS or into some sort of durable cache, and then we'll still continue to return the response. If at any point that request fails or starts to fail, then we blow the circuit, depending on you know how intense the failures are, how many happen in any given time period, and we start just reading from the cache instead. So the data will be stale during that period of time, but we're still servicing requests. And that's, you know, goes along with those guarantees. Like it might be okay for us to return stale data in that case. The alternative would be just to return an error immediately. And now you're not wasting time sitting there trying to make a request to an out to an external service that you don't control that's down or whatever, but you can just immediately return the error back uh, because that might be more along the lines of the guarantee that you care about. I, I really, I, I, I usually normally just return an error back. I really like that, that, you know, two different pieces there with the mitigation strategy of returning something cached. Yeah. Uh, I've never, I've never needed it. Um, but I really like it. And you could do something, you could use a durable cache, like put it in Redis or memcache or whatever. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's works pretty well for a lot of things, depending on how much memory you have and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I think Anna's got to run and it's probably late. She's muted too. She's talking, but it's just, Oh yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I am running late. All right, we should we should wrap this up. Well, thank you all. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> all right, Later, you too. Bye. Bye. Later. All right, another one in the can. Way better than last week.